This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Gardening on social media is an amazing um, thing. To be able to be connected to gardeners all over the world and learn from them, um, see how they're growing plants, uh, have them send you plants. Um, We're all learning from each other. It is absolutely amazing. This week, we revisit a Dispatches from the Home Garden, a gardener in Portland who not only loves to share her garden, but also loves her plants on the dangerous side with spikes and scales and teeth and muscles. I think you're gonna like it. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we revisit a best of dispatches from the home garden episode. We do this in part because I love this episode, but also because it is deepest, darkest winter, and who couldn't use a good hit of green? And finally, because I'd love to encourage listeners out there to consider being a dispatches from the home garden guest on Cultivating Place. What do you think? If you might be interested, please send me an email letting me know, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. I will look forward to hearing from you, and now to our best of with The Danger Garden. This week we visit avid home gardener, horticulturalist, and garden blogger, cultivating form and foliage with decided flair in Portland, Oregon. In partnership with her husband, Drew, she's been designing, planting, and loving her urban Portland, Oregon lot for 12 years. While the refrain from many home gardeners might be, less maintenance, less maintenance, less maintenance, not so for this gardener. She joins us today from the studios of Oregon Public Broadcasting from downtown Portland. We'll let her take it from here. My name is Lori Paul. I am 51 years old. I garden in Northeast Portland, USDA Zone 8. My background is in marketing. Uh, Most recently, I was a founding partner at plantless.com, which is a searchable database of plants. Uh, You can search based on your local conditions. These days, I'm a freelance garden writer who uh, gives talks and writes for my garden blog, posting new content five days a week. I also serve on the board of two horticultural societies, and I'm on the advisory committee for the Garden Bloggers Fling. My most important job currently is caring for our adorable senior chug, Lila, and I'm scheming on a future business doing custom container installations. Where did you grow up? Spokane, Washington, which is USDA Zone 6. I have really been gardening my entire life. Uh, My parents and my grandparents are all or were all avid gardeners. Um, As a teenager, it was more forced labor kind of gardening. Um, We grew up under massive amounts of ponderosa pines, and my mother had my brothers and I out picking up pine needles and pine cones every weekend. Uh, (laughs) But from there, I caught the passion, and um, it's it's never been a question of whether or not I would be a gardener. It's just, it's something that's in my blood. 
by my definition, I have had five gardens. Um, some people would think just two because I've only gardened at two homes where I actually had soil to plant in. But uh, even during my apartment days, I had gardens to tend. When I lived in Seattle, my dad and I built custom window boxes for my apartment so I could plant flowers and vegetables there in the windowsill. My apartment in Spokane, I was lucky to have a back porch and stairs that I could cover in containers. Would have terrified the fire department if they'd have seen that the exit <laughs> was blocked by massive quantities of containers, but it was beautiful and it was my garden. But two gardens where I actually had soil to plant in. We moved to our current home in July of 2005, so it's been 12 years. Is that the longest you've ever been in any one gardened space? Definitely. So before we get to a visual description of your current garden, I would like to ask you a little bit more about your garden blog. Tell us the name of your garden blog. My garden blog is called A Danger Garden. And why is it called this? I have a passion for dangerous, spiky plants that can draw blood if you get too close. And at the point that I was starting my blog, we're also in the process of adopting a pug. And as you know, pugs have bulgy eyes. And my husband was very concerned that the dog would inevitably run into an agave and poke its eye out. So that's where the name came from. Luckily, we ended up with a chug, which has a chihuahua grandparent uh, in its lineage. So she has a little bit of a longer nose, so kind of a buffer to keep her bulgy eyes from getting too close to the plants. I just can't help thinking of how many mothers... I don't know why I say mothers, but mostly mothers who admonish their children all the time. Careful or you're going to poke your eye out. <laughs> exactly. Luckily, no eyes have been poked out. Um, my garden <laughs> has drawn blood many times. Visitors have gotten a little too close and paid for it. Yes, we'll, we'll get to the um, mailman impaling plants <laughs> in a little bit. From my understanding, and I have followed your blog for some time now, your blog is basically a, a sister enterprise to your garden itself. Definitely. It started a few years later. I began uh, writing the blog in 2009, so I had about four years' experience at that time. You definitely can see the chronicles of where my, my garden started and where it is now by looking through the blog. Well, I went through the flower, pretty plant stage. It was during a time when I was working for a company that would send all of its retail managers to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona for a yearly conference uh, that I fell in love with spiky, dangerous uh, plants of architectural uh, foliage. Um, I'd never been to Arizona. I'd never been to the desert. And the whole trip once we got off the plane, uh, when we were being taken to the resort, I just, my eyes were in awe of what I was seeing everywhere. I fell in love with the desert at that point. And even though I live in the Pacific Northwest, I've done my best to uh, bring a little bit of the desert into my garden. And some of these plants would have been native to the eastern step of Washington outside of downtown Spokane. Am I right when I think that? There are definitely many uh, desert plants in that part of the world. Um, 
not really so many agaves, but there are opuntia. To be honest, I was never really in love with my surrounding spaces when I lived in eastern Washington. I wanted to be in the city. I didn't go out and explore nature at that point in time. I, I was a city girl. It kind of feels like you found your kind of natural home. Definitely. Um, while I would love the experience of gardening in the desert someday, um, the climate and growing conditions that we have here in the Willamette Valley are pretty ideal. We can grow such a wide range of plants. It's challenging, but I love being here. It's one of those horticultural hubs in in our world at this point where there's just a lot of interesting plant people doing interesting horticultural things in a variety of ways. So it's a great little hotbed to be gardening in, I would think. It is. It really is. Why did you start the blog? (laughs) Um, I wish I could say it was just uh, out of my own passion uh, for gardening and wanting to share my garden. But um, at the time, I had a failing computer at home and could have never started anything that was so uh, internet intensive. Um, But it all happened at work. Uh, The company I was working for, it was a marketing scheme that my boss came up with that if we all started blogs about things we were passionate about, then and somehow linked back to the company uh, website, that it would be a great marketing tool that would help get the company's name out. So I was able to start my blog and in the early days, do some of the blogging actually at work. I had great graphic support and the the tools that I needed to actually get the blog going. The idea behind the marketing of us starting blogs didn't really work out. I was laid off as the company dwindled uh, shortly thereafter, but I kept the blog going and it has become a very important part of my gardening and social life. It documents the life of your garden over time and through the seasons so beautifully. And what year was it that it started, Lori? 2009. And where would you say that was in terms of just the the life of blogs as a thing in our world? As far as garden blogs, there is definitely, that is the year that seems to be the year that everyone started blogging. Um, We have a very active community here in Portland of garden bloggers, and I think six of us all started our blogs that same year. So it Mm. it was the time. One of the great things about this interview is that the blog is such a perfect documentary of what we're going to be talking about. So listeners can go to it and and see exactly what it is to walk through your garden. You annually, you do a garden tour. You talk about what plants are there and you talk about what have been successful whether successful or not, what you have liked and not liked, which I I really love that aspect of the documentation of how a gardener's mind and experience in their place works. So describe your current garden for listeners and, and give us a sense of some of the exposure and what your house is that grounds the garden. My house, our house faces east, so we get great morning light in the front garden. Um, The front garden is definitely the public-facing space. It's not as um, 
ever-changing as the back garden is. The front garden is a little more static. Um, I've designed it so that it looks good year-round. Um, there's always things coming into flower and things changing, and but it really is pretty much always um, every, lots of evergreens, always looking um, full, and there's always something happening, some point of interest, be it a flower or bark exfoliating. The front garden is not designed to be walked through. I don't have any pathways going through it, which I think throws a few people. Um, but it's also fairly small. So from the sidewalk and sidewalks in the driveway, you can really see everything that's going on in the front garden. Our lot is just over 45 feet wide, and it's divided into really kind of quarters. So about a quarter of the 111-foot depth is the front garden. So it's pretty small, and it's on a slope, which actually... I've used to my advantage as far as being able to plant agaves and other dry livers in the front garden because the water, a large percentage of it tends to run off, which is wonderful for those plants because we get a lot more rain in the winter than they would like. The overall impression, just to make this very clear, of this garden is strong architectural form, cactuses, succulents, many shades of green, and really strong form. And your house, as I remember, is a... The house is painted a dark brown. Exactly. And it's this beautiful foil for these structural plants to play against. Describe some of the signature plants that people will see. In the front garden, the traffic-stopping plants are the Arctostaphylus, the manzanita. They are finally mm -hmm. all large enough that the bark is... It glows in the sunlight. Um, there's mm -hmm. a time of the year that it is peeling and exfoliating, and I've watched people stop and pick up pieces it, and kind of look around like, did someone see me do that? Is it okay if I take this? <laughs> it's amazing to watch the old, dark, kind of a burnt burgundy color peel away and then it's bright green underneath and then the bright green fairly quickly uh, takes on a darker mahogany hue. It's just sexy. The The trunks of the manzanitas are, you can almost see what looks like muscles underneath. There's movement even when the plant is not moving. And they are budding up now. Some of the early flowers are just starting to open. So it's a wintertime floral display that the hummingbirds and pollinators love visiting, so they're very active plants. Besides the manzanitas, there are several yucca rostrata in the front garden, which people tend to not realize are yuccas. The sort of spiky movement of the leaves and, and the kind of blue color that some of them have really draws people in, and they immediately want to know what those plants are. And most uncommon for the area are the agaves in the front garden. Um, some of them have gotten quite large, and I'm very happy that they've survived through our questionable winters. They did sustain quite a bit of damage last winter when we had multiple ice storms and snow for over a week and more rain in the spring than I think we'd ever had. But most of them made it through, and it was, it's been a chance to talk with people about these plants and, and what the requirements are and how we in rainy, wet Portland can get them to last through a winter. 
Which species of agave do you have out front, Lori? Um, the most successful and largest are the agave ovatifolia, the whale's mm-hmm. tongue. And I have the frosty blue version, which has a glowing blue-white sort of uh, tint to it as opposed to the greener variety. Uh, agave perii J.C. Ralston is another one that I've had great success with. It stays a little smaller, but it's got great form, and the teeth kind of have a nice red glow to them when the sun hits them. Uh, agave bracteosa, which is actually the kind agave. Uh, it doesn't have any of the spikes that people associate with agaves. So those that are afraid of mean plants are more likely to be drawn to the bracteosa. Our poor mailman um, cuts through the garden uh, near the house, um, going from our neighbor's mailbox to ours. And I wasn't thinking of him when I planted a uh, agave avatifolia that has grown to become massive right across from the hardy orange, the Panceres trifoliata, which has spikes that are probably three inches long. (laughs) So if he steps to one side to avoid the agave, he's impaled on the hardy orange. And if he avoids the hardy orange, he gets his calf stuck with the agave. He's a very nice man. I really hope he he gets a, a a big a big end of year appreciation gift or something. Describe the hardy orange. This is not a plant that I am familiar with. The spikes definitely look citrusy. I I bought it because of the spikes, of course, but I had never actually seen the plant flower or the fruit develop. I've fallen in love with it even more because it gets these gorgeous white it's covered in gorgeous white flowers in the springtime, and there is a scent. It's not strong. You have to get close uh, to smell it, but uh, fairly quickly, the flowers then change to this fruit that kind of has a powdery luster to it, and they're green mm. all through the summer, and then just about the time that the foliage starts to turn a beautiful yellow uh, then the fruit starts to color up as well, and it gets to be kind of an orangey-yellow. I wish they stayed on the tree longer. Uh, it would be just a gorgeous thing to see those long spikes with the big fruit, but they do start to drop, especially with our east winds. They drop fairly quickly. So I'm out there every day picking them up and bringing them in the house because the fruit smells delicious. It does not taste very good, however. People use it for marmalades or, I believe, if you're making a cocktail but I just use them as decoration because they smell so good and they're so pretty. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're hearing about the plant and garden journey of Lori Bowl, head gardener of her home garden, the Danger Garden, a Portland home garden dedicated to traffic-stopping often unusual plants with spikes and spines and thorns. A lifelong gardener, it was not until Lori's first visit to the American Southwest for business that she realized her spirit plants were those that thrive in the desert. She's figured out some creative ways to adapt her Oregon garden to the plants she loves. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Thanks so much for listening today. 
in deepest, darkest winter. I love that you're here with me and with Lori Bowl. Her whole story of the Danger Garden's genesis and journey inspires me. The very physical and real relationship she has with her plants and her active engagement with the beauty to be found in their strengths and their dangers. For me, this is a really interesting articulation of what many of us enjoy about the garden. The nitty-gritty, the challenge, the embodiment of the fact that it is hard, physical work that can sometimes draw blood, almost always draws sweat, and sometimes draws tears. But if it was too easy, would we love it as much? Not me, and I'm guessing not you. The fact that our garden and nature love calls on us to push ourselves past our known limits sometimes, asking for us to show up as physical beings, as intellectual beings, and as spiritual beings. This is a big part of why we love it, I think. It's not always easy, and there's not just one definition or embodiment of its beauty. In last week's episode with Sarah Burr, we heard her talk about foraging for fruit and how in her youth and early ignorance, she had sometimes taken fruit from people's trees, overhanging streets, etc., without permission. In this week's episode, we hear from Lori how sometimes people will pick a wavy piece of manzanita bark from the sidewalk for its ornamental beauty and texture, and they'll look around as if to wonder, is it okay to pick this up? Following up on an email from listener Jessica Morrison, I want to remind listeners that taking fruit or any plant part from private property is in fact theft. And without appropriate permits on public land, it is likewise against the law. As Jessica writes, I had several experiences with people coming onto my property and taking fruit, not just one or two pieces, but baskets and bags, fruit that I had lovingly cultivated and spent an inordinate amount of money organically treating and amending. This is not a practice that is appreciated, she finishes. And as Sarah Burr states, in no uncertain terms, a very good common sense rule of thumb is this. If taking something makes you a jerk, don't do it. I don't think Lori has any problem with someone picking up a wavy piece of manzanita bark that has fallen onto the ground or sidewalk. But you know when you're being a jerk, so pay attention. I hope you get a chance this week to head to the website at cultivatingplace.com Check out the episode post on Lori Bowl and the Danger Garden, and make sure to subscribe to the newsletter. It's a great way for me to connect more directly with you. Thank you to everyone who reached out this past week. Now, back to our conversation with Lori Bowl. Welcome back to our discussion on the pros and cons, mostly pros, of the Chinese bitter orange tree in her front garden. How long have you had that tree? I believe it was planted in 2011. Um, The front garden was the first part of our garden that we tackled. Um, We took out all of the lawn, and we moved to Portland during a warm period where all around town, cordylines were growing and flowering, and formiums had attained small car size and were flowering. And I fell in love with that style, and that's what I planted in the front garden. 
And then we had back-to-back really cold winters in 2008, 9, and 9-10. And all of those plants died. And I replanted the front garden with things that were much hardier and that I'd seen in mature sizes around town. So I knew that they were going to live long enough to attain some size in my garden. The Ponceres was part of the second iteration of the front garden. My climate is both a blessing and a curse, especially with my style of gardening, which is slightly on the edge of what's hardy here. So you can go a few years and everything is fine. And then you get that winter where the winds come in from Canada. They blow through the gorge. Uh, We are known for cold east winds here. And unfortunately, I selected a garden that's right in the pathway of those winds. The winds are a blessing in that they keep the air stirred up. If it is a cold night, then it tends to be a little warmer in my area because of the winds. But those cold, constantly blowing winds just suck the moisture out of broadleaf evergreens. So that is a challenge. And then because I live so close to the Columbia Gorge We tend to get ice buildup whenever there's the possibility of that here. Other parts of town can have no ice, and my garden is covered in ice. The ice can get so heavy that it just tends to bend and break things that have fragile stems. So before we get to the way you surmount that, keep us going around the house. In addition to my mailman impaling plant, I chose to plant a rather spiky Mahonia right next to the neighbor's driveway. It's Mahonia Charity. It's a beautiful plant. The hummingbirds are all over it right now because it's in bright yellow spikes of tiny, tiny flowers. The plant has branched into probably 10 or 12 different growing tips, so at each tip there is probably eight different spikes of these flowers erupting. Um, Once the flowers have passed, then beautiful purple berries develop. The neighbors have let me know that they would appreciate me trimming it a little bit, which I have done. The other plants on that side of the house have lots of Japanese forest grass with its beautiful um, kind of flowing uh, green color that anytime the wind blows through it shimmers. I've got a couple of Fatsia japonica on that side of the house because they are indestructible. I think that they're beautiful, and they also are blooming right now. Uh, Lots of pollinators buzzing all around. With the Fatsia japonica, that gets pretty big. How do you keep that back to size too? Does it take pruning pretty happily? It does. I've selectively pruned a few branches that are starting to encroach upon the sidewalk or the neighbor's driveway. Because of our cold winter winds, all the leaves are moving up the branches so I can actually plant mm-hmm. underneath it. It's not just that solid mass of green that you see a lot of times with that plant. You see the branches, which mm-hmm. are actually quite nice. Walking up our driveway on the other side of the house, the concrete goes right up to the wall of the house. There's no soil to plant in on the southern exposure of our home. I wish I had some of that nice, warm southern soil to work with, but We decided to make the driveway our vegetable gardens. We got some uh, stock tanks and have those right up against the dark brown wall, setting right on the concrete of the driveway. So Portland is kind of infamous for being hard to get tomatoes to ripen here. But with the heat of our driveway and the reflected heat off the house, I can have a great tomato harvest in the stock tanks. I've started doing a cutting garden in the driveway. So I've been planting zinnias, 
in the summertime, so I can always have fresh flowers in the house. Right as you're walking into the backyard, uh, you get that wonderful vegetable floral explosion. Then heading into the backyard, I'd asked for a low gate so that you could see over it and see into the garden. And my husband designed uh, what I call the agave gate, and it ha- it's a sheet of metal that an agave shape that he drew was uh, laser cut into the gate. That kind of sets the tone for walking into the back garden because first you have to walk through this metal gate that has this big agave on it. Walking into the back garden, you can't see the entire space at once. You walk into the one patch of lawn that we still have, and it's got very deep borders all around the lawn, lots of big leaf plants and unusual flowers. My Aurelia Schefflera collection is right up against our garage, on the north side of our garage. gets a lot of shade. They're very happy there. Looking straight ahead, you can see a big loquat with those long pleated leaves, and right now it also is in uh, white flower, which very fragrant, beautiful flower. I've got three hardy palms that are starting to take on some size, dotted around the back garden. Up against the back of the house, some annual vines grow that provide beautiful flowers in the summertime. Also, a few calistamin bottle brushes. There's a yellow-green variety and a red uh, flower. Once you're actually in the back garden, then you realize that there's a whole nother sunken area to the west that you couldn't see as you were entering, and that's where our patio is. Because I have a very large container collection, my husband decided that we needed to build a large patio, so I had a great place to display them. So mm. Partway through the project, he was kind of regretting that because he was the one responsible for placing 90-pound pavers. Our back garden isn't just one level. There is the natural sunken, uh, where the patio is, is a sunken space. It's probably about three feet lower than the upper garden, a natural feature that really lends itself well to feeling like you're in a private space when you're in the patio because it's down Mm -hmm. a little bit further than the surrounding area. One of the signature plants, uh, Sammy, only a few of my plants have names, but um, one of the things that you see as soon as you walk into the back garden is the yucca rostrata. That's about six feet tall now. We happened into Cystus Nursery out on Savi Island right after a shipment of them had come in, and my husband and I fell in love with them immediately. I was a little hesitant to accept responsibility for a plant that had a couple of zeros in the price tag, but he was (laughs) determined that it needed to be in the garden, and I've since discovered just how hardy that plant is. It sat outside in its container, unplanted, through one of our coldest winters because I hadn't yet decided where to plant it. I thought for sure Mm. I'd killed it, but they are very, very strong plants. Why is it named Sam? I have no idea. It just, (laughs) it it looked, it just, that name came out of my mouth. It was Sammy as soon as it came home with us. The naming tradition didn't start with Sammy. However, there's also Clifford, which is our big leaf magnolia. That, (laughs) That one my husband named. If you've ever seen a magnolia macrophylla, the leaves can be two and a half feet long, maybe 15 inches wide. He named it after Clifford, the big red dog with the big ears. Yeah, yeah. That's so great. How old would Sammy have been when you bought him? That is a great question. Was it already trunking at the time? Yes, yes. It had probably a three-foot-tall trunk when we purchased it. And you can see actually on the trunk where it went in the ground because there's a definite kind of 
uh, cinched in spot where it stopped really growing the trunk and started growing the roots. And then mm. you can see that it started back up again, uh, putting on height and girth in the trunk. Because they, they kind of start out looking like hedgehogs yes. before they mature and start moving up. And then they move into being these kind of Dr. Zeus trees. Yes. We're, we're in the back garden. You have the, the sunken patio with your fantastic container garden display. And you have some, some tall trees, like the low quad. I'm seeing really big leaves in the back. Mm-hmm. And again, all these fabulous shades of green. How many hours a week do you spend in the garden in general at this point, Lori? Working or just being in the garden? I consider them both the same. (laughs) Our patio table becomes my workspace in the summertime. Uh, Luckily, our Mm -hmm. internet connection is strong enough that I can take my computer out there and work. So I am in the garden every possible second in the summertime, working in the morning before it gets hot and then working in the garden in the morning. Once it's warm, I'm either on the patio table working in the shade or we have a structure that we call the shade pavilion that is great to work Mm -hmm. under in the hot summer. About how many hours of maintenance or gardening do you think you put into your garden at this point? I would say on a weekly basis, probably around 10, Mm -hmm. especially if I'm including watering in the summer, because Mm -hmm. unlike many people think, Portland is not always rainy. Uh, The water gets turned off in the summer and we get no rain. So if something needs water, I've got to be out there with the hose taking care of it. Do you have an irrigation system or are you hand watering only? Everything is hand watering. I love to Mm -hmm. be out there with the plants and seeing how they're doing. It does create a problem in the summertime when we want to go on vacation and luckily I have a couple great friends that have stepped in and taken care of the garden in my absence. Mm -hmm. It sounds like your husband is a pretty, if not full partner in the gardening adventure. He is a very happy assistant gardener. Yes, Andrew digs fabulous holes. We do have a very rocky soil, so occasionally I'll hit a big rock that I just cannot get around myself. So he's there with the rock bar and helps dig the hole. He was very active in the beginning um, when we took out the lawn in the front and planted and brought in gravel mulch and then in the building of the patio and the shade pavilion in the back. Um, he is not so much active in the actual gardening part. That's mm-hmm. my uh, job and my joy. But he is a very um, excited uh, participant in plant purchases and uh, enjoys the garden space with me. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Lori Bowles' Portland Home Garden and Garden blog, The Danger Garden, is our Dispatches from the Home Garden this week, and I am writing down plant names left and right while listening to her. We'll be back after a break to hear more about Lori and Andrew's garden of often big, bold foliage plants, sometimes with names like Sammy and Clifford. Stay with us. It's Jennifer again. Thank you again for listening. 
I don't know if you know how great it is for me to know you are out there. Are you loving this conversation with Lori? I am. The depth of her attachment to her garden, to its individual plants, to her husband Andrew, and their chug Lila, and how they are all in this garden life together, it's fabulous. And clearly, Lori is the head gardener, spending 10 or more hours gardening each week. That's kind of a tough question to answer, I think. For me, it depends on the seasons, real seasons, but also seasons of life. How happy or sad I might be, how busy my desk life or my daughter's lives are as well. I'd estimate that in my small suburban garden, I spend between two and 10 hours a week. And it always improves my mood and perspective, even when it's, maybe especially when it's doing something mundane, like weeding, or something kind of gross like cutting back mushy winter dieback. What do you think? What about you? This is what I mean when I ask people what their gardening practice is. Those hours we spend intentionally incorporating this activity of body and mind into more of our everyday lives for our own well-being and sanity. It's also a social activity, as Lori points out. Sharing this practice with others makes it all the better. Speaking of sharing, if you love cultivating place, we would love it if you told a friend about the show. Tell your best friend, your gardening group, your neighbor with the amazing window boxes, the people who work down at the nursery. Share this experience with them. Help them subscribe to the show on their phones or show them our Instagram account. That's at cultivating underscore place. Along with sunlight, regular watering, and some care and attention, word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow. Thank you very much in advance. And now back to our conversation with Lori Bull in The Danger Garden. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break with gardener, plant collector, and garden blogger Lori Bull of The Danger Garden, her home garden in Portland, Oregon. A 10-hour-a-week-or-more gardener who moves hundreds of plants undercover, under lights, and back out again throughout the seasons in order to ensure their survival and thriving, I think we can say Lori Bull is a dirt-under-your-nails kind of gardener. Welcome back. The Shade Pavilion, I think, becomes one of the fantastic resources for working around some of your challenges. Talk about how you use the Shade Pavilion and your what sounds like incredible process to winterize your garden. My ridiculous process of winterizing my garden. (laughs) Um, Not at all. (laughs) The Shade Pavilion was Andrew's design, uh, and he designed it and built it because he is not the sun lover that I am, and we wanted a space. This was previous to Clifford, the big leaf magnolia, attaining size where it can actually shade the patio, but in the beginning, the patio was a very, very sunny spot. The shade pavilion was so that he would have a place to be in the garden in the summer. Then I think the first winter that the shade pavilion was in place, I 
took advantage of it and moved some containers underneath so that they would have coverage and not get as wet as they would if they were just setting out. That's when he really got to thinking that, hey, this building could serve double duty, and he designed a modular greenhouse-type structure that is built under and around the existing pavilion. So every winter, walls, clear walls and a clear ceiling go up, and I have shelving that I build, and we move the temperature-hardy plants that want it a little drier than our climate uh, into the shade pavilion, and that's where they spend the winter. So they're mm. dry. They still get plenty of light. I do have a heater that I can move in when our temperatures really get cold. It's an amazing transition to watch it go from this place where we hang out in the summer with chairs and table and plants to a very utilitarian greenhouse for the winter. It's an ingenious use of space. The non-temperature hardy plants, what do you do with those? The non-hardy plants go into the basement, which is a couple of day process because, of course, I want to look them over. Slugs in the basement is not a good thing. So I clean them up, get all the, <laughs> the bugs off, then carry them all down the stairs into the basement where they are under lights for five months or so. Five months? Yes. They typically go down to the basement uh, beginning of October. When the rains start, they typically start to migrate back out to the patio around April or May. What is the ambient temperature in the basement during this time about? It's probably around 60. It's a little cooler than mm -hmm. upstairs. And about how many plants make this journey <laughs> up and down those stairs? I don't count on purpose because I don't want to overwhelm myself. Um, <laughs> there are several small plants, so I can get a nursery flat or something and, and carry many at one time. They go on a, on shelving, and then I've tried to minimize the number of really big plants because I do most of this myself. Andrew helps out with a few of the heavier ones. It's easily 100 containers that go down into the basement. That is a great migration every <laughs> every fall and spring, Lori. It that is, is um, dedication. <laughs> and I'm not getting any younger, so. You do some really fun things with the foliage from your plants and your garden. Describe some of the some of the projects that you've taken on. I love being outside and being in my garden. And so when the winter rains come and I am forced to spend more time inside, I am constantly looking at ways to bring my garden indoors. So there are rotating vases full of foliage. I do not need flowers to feel like it's a great vase arrangement. So I'm always cutting branches, picking things up when I'm walking the dog around the neighborhood and sticking them in a vase or putting them on the mantles. The garden is very much present in the house over the winter months. This year, I decided that I was going to make our Christmas tree out of Opuntia pads. It's a cactus Christmas tree. And <laughs> we went searching at the uh, Mexican markets around town until we found one that had just gotten in a big shipment of nopales, and they had not mm -hmm. yet removed the glockids or the spines. So they were just fresh pads right from the field. They thought I was a little bit crazy, but I bought about 40 of them and strung these pads up on a tomato cage that was turned upside down. So I had that great conical shape. I used a aloe 
for the star. I wanted to use an agave, but I couldn't find one that I had that was the right size. So um, the aloe worked perfectly. And then I found burgundy red uh, Christmas ornaments, kind of glittery Christmas ornaments about an inch and a half wide. And those became the tunas, the fruit on the Opuntia pads. So I hooked them up onto the tomato cage so they hung just right at the tips of the pads and looked like the fruit that you would see on a Opuntia in the garden. What did you wear for protective gear? (laughs) It it came out beautifully. And I kept thinking, how did she do that? (laughs) I have a set of tongs that I use to hold the Opuntia pads and I use the tongs when I'm planting in the summertime as well because it's mm-hmm. a great way to hold a, onto the plant and be able to u- work with the root ball. And mm-hmm. I have um, gloves that have a fairly thick rubber uh, coating on the fingers. So between my gloves and my tongs and then my secret weapon is a wooden skewer that I could kind of hold the pad out of way when I was putting the ornaments in so I didn't... Mm-hmm have to touch them. I, I did end up with a few uh, stickers in my fingers, but <laughs> I'm used to that. So I have great uh, tweezers. <laughs> when you think about this garden and you think about this almost 12 years in it, would you say that this garden holds some important life memories for you, Lori? This garden holds many memories for me. Um, Because my husband and I did much of the hardscaping ourselves, um, I can look back on uh, those projects fondly now um, because they're all complete. But we were newly married when we moved into our house, so it was a good time of um, working together, learning each other's uh, working styles under stress and exhaustion. But being able to sit on the patio and remembering our first summer in the house where it was all weedy lawn, um, I can look around and remember, you know, every step of the way what we did together to build this garden. Even though I'm the one out there planting, um, he's been very important in the design and the building of the hardscaping projects that we've done. So knowing that we did it together is a very special um, memory. Also, because I have so many wonderful gardening friends and we have such a tight community here, and because I've met so many great gardeners through the blog and the social media aspect of gardening, every one of my plants has a story, and so many of them aren't just the plant, but they're also a friend. I can look at that agave and remember that the friend in California sent that to me and look at the magnolia that I tracked down that I wanted and the friend who had it in her garden and was moving and gave it to me. Um, So they're not just plants that I picked up at the nursery. They all have a history and there is something very personal about every single one of them. Also... um, Our dog, Lila, my husband is the one who wanted the dog. I wasn't really so excited about the idea, but went along with it. And the first winter that she was with us was one of the first really bad winters. And I was outside uh, looking at my bamboo laying horizontal on the patio and Sammy the Echostrata covered in ice and 
just looking deflated and I was certain I was going to die. And I, I'm sad to say, but the tears came out of my eyes and I was just so deflated. And Lila started hopping around in the snow and she literally like she turned into a clown right there. Like she she could see how <laughs> sad I was and she was just okay, nope, I'm going to I'm going to make her happy. And ever since then, she and I have been very tight. She turned into my dog that day as well, not just my husband's. So, when I look at those plants, I still can see her just jumping around and playing and having a great time and cheering me up. Yeah. And for for listeners, they you should know that if you follow the Danger Garden, you will also follow the adventures of Lila the lovely Chug, so um, who is adorable. She so is. you are you are very integrated into this world of gardening on social media, garden blogging, getting together in real life. You are very active in a group. Maybe you co-founded it, the Garden Bloggers Fling, where garden bloggers and social media gardeners gather at a different place each year to explore gardens, meet each other, talk about life and these processes. I was not a co-founder. I can't take credit for that. Okay. When you think about your life as a gardener at home in this space with your husband, with your dog, and your kind of more private life there. And and then you branch out into these horticultural societies. I should note that you and I sit together on the board of the Pacific Horticulture Society. And on a whole scale larger magnitude, the world of social media and gardening, which can connect us to people in South Africa and Australia and, and Ireland all in one day, when you think about yourself as a gardener, as a as a garden writer, and a plant advocate, and then you think about these sort of scales of magnitude, what are your what are your hopes for the world of gardening and horticulture as we look forward? Ooh, that's a big one. Um, first of all, the social media gardening. Gardening on social media is an amazing um, thing to be able to be connected to gardeners all over the world and learn from them, um, see how they're growing plants, uh, have them send you plants. Um, we're all learning from each other. It is absolutely amazing. I cannot imagine gardening in a time where I didn't have that connection with people. And it's someone to share your failures with, too which is really nice uh, to know that you're not alone, that everyone's killed that plant two or three times. <laughs> I hope that, um, while I know it will change, blogging has definitely changed while I've been doing it. People have dropped off from the blogosphere. Um, many are saying that blogging is dead, um, but Instagram's stepping up, and, and I think... There will always be something new, a new platform, a new way that we're meeting each other. But I hope that we continue to do that because it, the camaraderie and the knowledge base is such a mm -hmm. wonderful aspect of social media. I have an acquaintance that is very down on Facebook, down on 
the internet as a waste of time and it takes you away from what's really valuable and that is the people that's around you. But it, I, their experience is so much different than mine because I feel more connected to my garden and more connected to the natural world because of the people that and the connections that I've made through social media. So if you had advice for, for young gardeners or young garden bloggers, garden writers starting up, what would that advice be, Lori? My advice for a beginning gardener is to just jump in, um, find a corner, maybe right outside your back door, just someplace that you can start because if you focus on the garden as a whole, it's going to be overwhelming and you'll come back from the nursery with the 12 great plants you picked out and put them in the ground and they'll just disappear. But by picking a small space and starting there and working out from there, you'll give yourself that little bit of heaven where you can see that eventually um, your whole garden could look like that, but you're giving yourself a place to be that you will experience the plants close up and get to see them change and and grow um, without getting overwhelmed. Um, my advice for a beginning blogger, pick a schedule you can you can stick to. Don't overwhelm yourself. There's nothing wrong with uh, posting on your blog or on Instagram once a week. Jump in there and find your voice and share what you're creating with the world, and you'll make great connections. My favorite time of year uh, is summer. I absolutely love summer in the Pacific Northwest. It's when the rain stops falling, and I get to spend every second that I can outside in my garden. We do get very hot here, very hot by Portland standards. In July and August, it can be in the 90s and over 100. I live for that time of the year. My favorite time of day in the garden is late afternoon and early evening. It's my favorite time to walk the garden and then sit down with a glass of wine and just become immersed in the plants and the life that's all around me. Mm -hmm. I do love going out and walking the garden in the morning and soaking up the morning light and uh, seeing all the activity uh, happening, but morning feels fairly transitory. It's, it's, I notice changes. I take photos because the light is so good in the morning, but in the afternoon and evening, I just love to be in the garden and get lost. How does your garden reflect you as a person, Lori? Especially with the blog, because it's all there, my mistakes and my successes over the years. And I look back at some of my early photos, and to be quite honest, I cringe, thinking, oh, I planted that there. I planted that next to that. What was I thinking? In the garden, I can really see my growth as a plant person, as I learned and discovered, not intentionally, but um, I think I've kind of expressed my personality in the way that I've planted because the front garden is, it, it doesn't change a lot. It's very static. It's beautiful. I, I love the plants, but it's just, it's kind of a um, facade. And then the back garden is where it's kind of wild and crazy and things come and go and change and there's color and exciting things happening. And I have been told that I live up to my uh, cancer birth sign and I kind of had that hard shell of the crab. And once people get to know me, that's when they see the other side of me. So the front garden is the 
the shell, and then the back garden is the kind of private, softer side. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the program. Thank you, Jennifer. Lori Boll is an avid home gardener, horticulturalist, and garden blogger cultivating form and foliage with decided flair in Portland, Oregon. Her garden is also known as the Danger Garden. In partnership with her husband, Drew, she's been designing, planting, and loving her urban space for more than 12 years. She joined us today from the studios of Oregon Public Broadcasting in downtown Portland. A side note to this episode. Since our conversation of almost a year ago now, the sweet gardening companion Chug Lila has passed away. Revisiting this episode is dedicated to her memory. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos of the Danger Garden, visit this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who makes this program possible. All of you, listeners, donors, commenters, and supporters, we couldn't do this without you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.